Of course, 1 Corinthians 13 is known as the love chapter. What he's been talking about here is the gifts of the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12 is about the gifts of the Spirit, what they are, how that they are, because this church had been divided over the gifts of the Spirit. Imagine the church of God fighting over things about God, and yet we still do that today. And so Paul was bringing correction to them and talking about the fact that although there are different gifts, there's really a unity because it's just one spirit, one message, one voice, uh, one purpose, and it's one body and it's like different parts of the body operating. And then in chapter 14, he addresses some specific gifts, gift of tongues and some revelatory gifts. And sandwiched in the middle, of course, is chapter 13. You understand Paul didn't write these in chapters and verses as one continuous teaching and discussion or letter. But chapter 13, which we call the love chapter, is really sandwiched in there. It's like the, it's like the ham and cheese between the, the top piece of bread and the bottom piece of bread. It's where the real meat is. But what this is about is that if these gifts are operated for the wrong motive, then they don't count as anything. And the right motive, of course, is love. And he goes through this, and he really is in here saying that the purpose of these gifts is to help reveal something about a God you can't see, the manifestation of the gifts of the Spirit. And so that's what he's bringing into focus here. And as he comes down to the end of this, in chapter 13, he's saying... When I was a child, verse 11, I spoke as a child, understood as a child, thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. What he's saying is while I was a child, I saw things in different terms and I did things, but I needed to because it was part of maturing. And so, but he says, when I became a man, I put away childish things. Why? I didn't need those things anymore because I'd matured beyond those. So what he's saying here, because he's going to go in verse 12 and say, now we see in a mirror dimly. But then we're going to see face to face. So what he's saying is right now we see spiritual things as if we're looking through a dim glass or looking at a mirror that's dim. We're seeing things, but they're not crystal clear to us. Just like a child sees things, but he, doesn't have the under, he or she doesn't have the full understanding until they grow into maturity and have some experience and perspective to bring into it. In the same way, spiritual things in this world, we're looking at through the filter of our flesh, our mind, our limited understanding. But then there's going to come a day when we see him face to face. When we don't need, and then we don't need the gifts of the Spirit because we're going to see Him. We don't need a manifestation of the Spirit because we're going to see Him face to face. There won't be any doubt what He's like, what His character is like, that He's real, because you'll see Him face to face. But until then, we need the gifts of the Spirit because we're not seeing Him face to face. So having gone through that discussion, then He ends with this. But verse 13, and But now abide faith, hope, and love. So what he's saying is these other things are going to pass away because they won't be necessary then. But when they've passed away, there's still three things that are going to remain because they're eternal. They are faith, hope, and love. So they're the eternal triumvirate, the, the eternal three. We hear a lot about faith. That's one of the parts of the name of this church. We don't do anything without faith. The Bible says we receive things by faith. We're saved by faith. That, that, that we can only understand God by faith. And, of course, we hear about love. This chapter is written about love. But one of these three we hear very little about. You don't hear a lot of teaching about it, but that's where we're going to spend some time beginning to look at starting tonight, and that's hope. 
Because hope is just as important, just as vital as faith and love. We're going to find out tonight, or beginning tonight, that you can't really function in faith, and you can't really walk in love without hope. And hope is the missing, one of the missing ingredients in many people's lives that are struggling, and especially in the day and hour in which we live right now, because what one of the things we're going to begin to look at is the church has based its hope in the wrong arena. Many of us have based our hope on the wrong things, the wrong people, the wrong institutions. And we're going to see, because especially in this, again, in this day and hour when we leave, and I'll talk a little bit more about this on Sunday, we had people calling the church today upset over the results of the election. I don't mean agreeing or disagreeing, shaken by it, in tears over it, scared over it. Kids in school today were panicked. Some of them were panicked over the results, and they don't even understand it. This is the church. We've been placed here to be a light in a world of darkness. And I'm not saying the election's darkness or not darkness. I'm saying whatever happens, whatever happens, we shouldn't be shaken. And the reason we're shaken is we put our hope in the wrong things. And I was planning this before the election. I was planning this before the stock market dropped 300 points a day. I was, this was something that's been in my spirit for a number of weeks, but it's just the timing of it's just right. So the thing we're going to begin to talk about tonight is hope, and we're going to begin by talking about why it's so important. So turn with me to Hebrews chapter 7, excuse me, Hebrews chapter 6. Now again, Hebrews is another letter that's written. Some Bible scholars think it's written by Paul. Some Bible scholars think it's not written by Paul. But the only way we're going to know is when we get to heaven and we ask Paul. Right? All right. So, and it doesn't matter because we know it's inspired by the Spirit of God. Now, this letter is also written as correction. And, and I'm not going to get into the correction itself. But at the end of chapter 5, he begins to talk about the fact that these believers should have been mature enough that by this time, they were already helping to teach others. Instead, he said, I've got to go back and begin to lay for you again a foundation of the basic doctrines of the church. And these are the basic doctrines we use in teaching new members class because these are the basic doctrines of the church. But we're supposed to move on past those. And he's talking to, to believers that had come out of persecution. This is, a, this is called the book of Hebrews because it's written to Jewish believers that have been scattered as a result of persecution. And again, I'll probably make some comments about this on Sunday. But understand this. The church has lived through more difficult times than we're in right now. I'm at my faith Christian center. The Lord, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ that we're part of has lived through much more difficult times than we're facing right now with much more difficult issues uh, politically or governmentally. With, they've lived in much more hostile times. And the history of the church shows that the more hostile the country is to the church, the stronger the church gets, not the weaker. So this is the time when we ought to be getting stronger, 
not weaker. All right. Because this is the blood-bought church. This is a church that overcomes. This is not a church that fails when the challenge arises. Now, we don't do that in our own strength, but we have to learn to depend on God, on the Spirit of God, and on each other. And the reason our hope gets shaken is we become, learn, we've been learning to depend on other things other than what God's given to us to depend upon. All right. So what's what's happened to the, the, these Hebrew believers? And they were scattered through much of Asia Minor, which is what we know now as Turkey. And, and they were being, having been scattered, what was happening is their doctrine was beginning to be challenged by people known as Judaizers who were coming in and trying to convince them that in order to be saved as Jews, they not only had to believe in Jesus, but they had to practice the old rituals under the old covenant as well. And Paul saw that as a threat to the purity of their devotion to Christ. So that, or whoever the writer of Hebrews was. So that's kind of the context in which this is written. So having said that, let's go over to this point. Um, to verse 17. Thus God, determined to show abundantly to the heirs of the promise the immutability, that means the unchangeability of His counsel, confirmed it with an oath. He's talking about the foundation of what they believe, what their hope is in, what their confidence is in. And he said, God determining to show the heirs of, to the show the heirs of the promise That's not only the Jews then, but it's you and me now. We're heirs of the promise to show them the immutability, the unchangeability of His counsel. Now, we've just come through an election where everybody will tell you whatever they need to tell you to get elected on both sides. And I was talking, we were just out, we were down in Texas at, a, at our daughter's wedding and we had a, part of our family was there and talking to, to our younger sons who've part of a younger generation, and that generation is getting fed up with the way we've done things because they don't trust anybody. Why? Because they can't trust people's words. The problem, but we can trust God's word. Whether you can trust any person's word in your life, what he's telling us here is the unchangeability of God's promises. So our hope and our confidence has to be in something that doesn't change. I've been through at least three bank crises in my legal career. Banks that you never thought would fail fold up. But you know what? The church is still here. You know what? God didn't fold up. You know what? God's Word hasn't changed. So this is a time when we step back and look, what is my confidence really in? Back in the 80s, there were a number of major ministries that had moral failures and people were leaving the church. Why? Because they put their faith and confidence in a man, not in God. Because God didn't have a moral failure. And, they, and not everybody did. All right. So God determined to show more abundantly to the heirs of the promise the immutability, the unchangeability of His counsel confirmed it with an oath that by two immutable, unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. Not difficult. It is impossible. Now, the Greek word impossible means not possible. You got that? 
It takes possible and it says it isn't. <laughs> it is impossible for God to lie. Now think of the things that we have our confidence in. We have our confidence that the sun's going to come up tomorrow. We may not see it, but we'll know it's up because it will get light. We have confidence that, 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 the, that the ground will be there tomorrow when we step out of the, our front door onto it. In fact, in an earthquake, that's what really shakes people up is because the thing they have confidence is steady and solid, they discovered isn't so steady and isn't so solid. So those are things we think, well, it's, it's not possible that the sun wouldn't come up. And yet it is possible someday that the sun won't come up. We step out on that earth with absolute confidence that it's going to hold us because it doesn't enter our mind that it's not possible that it wouldn't hold us. So we're not checking it out when we step out the door. We just step out boldly as if we know it's going to hold us. And yet science will tell us it is possible someday that that earth could open up and cave in. So we have confidence. So we don't even question whether the sun's going to come up. We don't question whether that ground's going to hold your car when you pull out of the driveway. We just, we have such confidence that it's unchangeable that we act as if it's going to be there and we don't ever question it. And yet we know when we stop and think about it that those things are not guaranteed to be there. They are not guaranteed to be unchangeable. And yet the Word of God tells us that God's Word is unchangeable. It is more sure, it is less likely that one of God's promises would fail than that the sun wouldn't come up tomorrow. It's more likely that when you drive out of the driveway in your car tomorrow that the ground will fail and your car will sink in than that this Word of God will fail. And yet we need signs to prove it to us. We want God to prove to us why we should trust His Word. Because it says in two unchangeable things. One of them is His oath, His promise. We don't have time tonight to get into it, but I teach a course in school of ministry and I've taught it here before on the blood covenant. And what I teach in that course is that God entered into a blood covenant to prove to them that he meant what he said. But God doesn't need to, to prove that he means what he says. Why? Because it's impossible for him to lie. Now think about what that means. That if God decided to lie, he can't. Why? Because whatever he says becomes truth. Because John seventeen seventeen says... His word is truth. It doesn't say God always tells the truth. It says truth is whatever God says. That's why it's impossible for him to lie. My mother used to say to us, don't do what I say, don't do what I do, do what I say. Of course, we did what she did. But she would say, look, if I tell you blue is red, it's red. But it was still blue. <laughs> Just because she said so didn't change blue to red. But if God says 
blue is red. It's now red. Because God said so. How did all this come into being to begin with? Because God said. That's why he can't lie. So the first reason you can trust his word is because of his nature and character, because he is truth. The second reason we can trust him is because he gave his word with an oath, and he pledged himself behind the oath. So if he breaks his oath, he forfeits his life. That's what an oath is. So he's talking here about what our confidence is in having laid that foundation, that by two immutable things, verse 18, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation or assurance or confidence. And if we ever needed anything in this day, it's strong assurance and confidence. Who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope that is set before us. Now, one of the first things we're going to see about hope is it has to be something in the future, not something in the past. So, hope may be based on something in the past, but hope is always future. So, it's something set before us that we can have our hope in. So, in order to have hope, you've got to be willing to look in front of you not so much behind you. And you've got to take your eyes off of where you are in order to have hope because hope by its very nature, we're going to see, is down the road. It may be just down the road tomorrow, but it's not here now. So in order to have hope, you've got to be willing to lift your eyes up off of where you are and what's going on and be willing to look at something set before you, not something set on where you are or where you have just been. Now, it's important to have an awareness of where you've been and it's important to know where you are, but you also have to have your eyes on where you're going. I mean, they know that when they design a car. Have you ever noticed that the rearview mirror is smaller than your front windshield? That's for a very practical reason. They know you need to spend more time looking forward through the windshield than backwards through the rear mirror. You need to have a rear mirror because you've got to be able to see what is behind you. But you can't let the rear view mirror view Take your eyes too long off of where you're going or you're going to have a crash. And what's happened to so many Christians is they're either spending all their time looking in the rear or looking at what's in the car where they are and you know what happens when you do that? The car stops. And you stay right where you are because you have no idea where you're going. And what happens eventually is when you have no hope, you'll just stop and become stagnant where you are. And the thing with growth is you're either growing forward or you're slipping backwards. You never stay static for very long. It may feel as if you're not getting anywhere, but if you're not moving forward, you're sliding backwards. So that's one of the reasons that this is so important. All right. 
Verse 19. This hope, which is the hope of what's in front of us, the hope of what's set before us, we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, which enters the presence behind the veil. Now let's take a moment or so and talk about what an anchor does. And as I was talking to someone on the phone today uh, uh, who, who has a boat, I was thinking, boy, what a great message for a night like tonight or a week ago when we had Sandy visiting us. Because what does an anchor do? An anchor is something that, because a boat, let's think what about a boat is. A boat is floating out on something, which is water, right? Unless it's, on the, unless it's in a dry dock or on a pier. So a boat is being held up by the water. And so it's dependent, its stability is dependent on its, the condition of that water. So when it's nice and calm, that boat just sits there tied at the dock or, or out in the harbor. It's just floating along. But when the winds begin to pick up and begin to blow, that boat, unless it's moving, unless it's going forward, that boat is at the mercy of the wind and the waves, which is why James talks about what a double-minded man is like, which is a man who has no hope. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. He is like a boat driven and tossed by the wind and the waves. There's no stability. One day he's up, everything's going great because, you know, whatever I, whatever I put my confidence and trust in looks good, feels good, sounds good. My body's feeling healthy today. Uh, you, know, you know, again, if you've got investments, the stock market's up. If it's a matter of your family, you know, the kids are all happy today. Your wife smiled at you this morning and she loves you today. You know, you go to work, your boss likes you. You know, everything's, I'm, I'm having a good day. Everything's falling in place. So I feel hopeful. Wake up the next day, it's a very different day. The, the toast was burnt, the cat, you know, the, the cat did something on the floor they shouldn't have done, you know, car doesn't start, when he gets started you got a flat tire, all these circumstances, you get into work and your boss snours at you and now you're having a rotten day. Whatever it is that's caused you to go up and down, if it moves you, is what you put your hope in. So think about that boat. It's being supported by the water and moved by the wind. So when they bring that boat into a harbor and they're going to, they're going to spend the night in that harbor or there's a storm brewing and they want to make sure they're not going somewhere they shouldn't go, what do they do? They put an anchor out. And what is that anchor? That anchor is something that comes from out, out, out of the boat itself and when they drop it over the side, because I've had a small boat, this anchor goes over the side. In fact, listen. Well, I better, I have, I'll tell the story. <laughs> About five or six years ago, uh, we bought, I bought a boat. It's an old, 20-year-old boat. Something my son and I were going to do together. And, and, you know, I didn't know a whole lot about them. My, my family had boats, but it had been a long time since I had one, and they had sailboats. This was a power boat, you know. And I got my family in it, and I'm going out into the channel. And it's, it's a small boat. 
And, you know, I go out on the channel and, and I've got our granddaughter in it for the first time and talk my daughter-in-law to coming in. My wife was in it. You know, I'm trying to convince them this is safe out there. And I get out there and I go past the, the second to the last buoy and decide, hey, this is a huge bay. Oh, you know, tankers go up and down in this, in this thing. And I got this little boat that doesn't draw much. I don't need to stay in the channel. So I decide to cut a corner. And we get about, I don't know, 20 or 30 yards out there. And all of a sudden, there's a bang like that. And I'm going along. And my son looks over the side. He says, Dad, I think we hit something. Well, we hit something, all right, because I looked down and this big Narragansett Bay where we were was about that deep. And I found, we found ourselves surrounded by rocks. And the propeller shaft had hit a rock and was just spinning. So I, now, whereas before we were under power going somewhere, now we're at the mercy of the tide, which is coming in, and the wind, which is coming in. So what do I do? I dig out the anchor, tie the other end of the rope. <laughs> <clears throat> And I throw the anchor over the side. So the anchor has to come out of the boat. I have to decide to throw it out. But when I do, it sinks into the mud and it has prongs on it so that as it digs into the mud and the boat begins to move, it's like a bar of a hook. It now engages in those stones and that mud and it begins to hold the boat. Now a boat that's anchored from one anchor is still going to be subject to the wind, so it may change directions. It may move around, but it's not going to go anywhere because the anchor keeps it in the same place. So that gives us a little idea of what an anchor. Notice he said hope is an anchor to the soul. Now, we've studied this before. There are three parts to you. There's your body, which is the part that we're most familiar with. That's the material part of you. There's your spirit man. That's the part of you that was reborn when you came to Christ. That's the part of you that was made in the image of God. That's the part of you that's the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. But there's a third part of you, which we've studied before, is kind of a bridge between your body and your spirit, and that's your soul. Your soul is made up of your mind, the part you're active thinking, your will and your emotions. That's your soul. Now, circumstances happening in your life are not going to change your spirit. And they they won't change your body unless it's sickness or disease or it's the result of an emotional reaction. But most of the up and down in our life is in our soul. Worry, fear, those are emotions. They're in our soul. Uh, 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 feeling, feeling joyful and, and encouraged, that's in our soul. Feeling discouraged, depressed, those are emotions that are in our soul. That's the part of us that's the most vulnerable to being up and down. And unfortunately, most of us gauge reality by our emotions, not by the Word of God. And so the writer of Hebrews is saying that hope One of the things, the first thing hope does is it provides an anchor to our soul, stability. So although the winds of life may turn around and change you, look like you're headed in different directions, you won't be moved by that to a different location. 
So you won't be blown about by every wind of doctrine. You may feel like you're turning a little bit, but you're not going to be moved from where you are because your soul is not anchored in the wind and the waves. Your soul is anchored in the hope that God has set before you. Peter's a good example of that. Peter, I mean, one of the greatest examples of what we deal with is, the, is Peter. I love Peter. He's a great inspiration to me because he's like so many of us. We get, we get confident in what we think we know and what we think we can do. And Jesus was so patient with him and so loving with him, and he did the same thing with Peter that he'll do with us. He let Peter show what he can do. And then when Peter finds out what he can do, Jesus is right there to pick him up and show Peter what Jesus can do because Jesus needs to bring us to the place, every one of us, where we come to the end of our confidence in what we can do. And when we run out of confidence in what we can do, that's where we'll meet him and find out what grace really means. And so Peter's in the boat in a storm. He's already panicked. And Jesus is walking on the water. And in Matthew's account, Peter says to him, Master, if that's you, bid me to come. And we all know the story. Jesus said, come. Well, Peter gets out on the boat, and in the middle, we forget that this is in a storm. The same storm that only minutes before they were afraid they were going to sink in, Peter's now not just not afraid anymore. He's walking on the water. Well, actually, he's walking on the word come. Because when Jesus said, come, he cannot lie. So when he said, come, that means Peter could come. Whether it meant walking on the water, fly, it didn't matter how, because Jesus said, come, Peter was going to be able to get there. See, how it happens isn't our business. Our business is to take him at his word. Years ago, I had a teacher give me this example, and it just helped me so much. He said, he said if, if the Lord tells you to go to the end of the pier and get in a boat that'll be at the end of the pier and row to the other side, your job is to walk to the end of the pier and get in a boat, right? That's, that's what he told me to do. His job is to make sure there's a boat there and then it can get to the other side, right? But what do we do? We say, oh, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord, I will obey you. And we start walking towards the end of the pier. But what are we doing while we're walking? We're looking out to see if there's a boat there. And if there's no boat there, our eyes start searching the horizon to see if there's one in sight, right? Because if there's not one in sight... What a weird temptation is to slow down to give God more time to get a boat at the end of the pier. So we're trying to help him do what he said he'd do. And while we're trying to help him do what he said he'd do, we're not doing what he told us to do. It's God's job to get a boat there. Now, let's think about who this God is and what He's capable of doing. Is He capable of getting a boat there when He needs to? I think so. 
even if he doesn't get a boat there, he can have us walk on the water. Because what he told us was to get to the other side of the lake. And Peter's an example of this. He said, come. He didn't say walk on water. I never taught this this way before. He didn't say walk on water. He said, come. How Jesus, Peter could come was Jesus' business. Peter's job was to take him at his word and get out of the boat. And that's where many of us still are. We're still in the boat because we're looking at the water. Now, we forget that this story's in the same storm that only a few minutes ago, they were afraid the boat was going to sink. Oh, this fits right in. Because you see, the other, all 12 of them had their hope in the boat. And stop and think about it. That's not an irrational thing to do because what was their profession? They were fishermen and they fished out of these boats. So almost every day of their life that they could remember, they either saw or were fishermen in boats that went out on this water. They learned to put their confidence in the boat. They had tremendous confidence. They may have even built these boats. But there came a time where Jesus is trying to bring them to another level of trusting in Him. Because they were going to need to learn to trust in what He said to do or was going to happen and not trust in what they had put their hope in before. You ever know, in Mark's account, it said Jesus would have passed them by. In fact, he's on the mountain praying. And he looks up and sees them in the middle of the storm struggling. It almost sounds as if he didn't care. In fact, in another story, isn't that what they said to him? Don't you care about us? And I'm sure most of us have been at some point in the middle of a storm in our lives and we didn't see Jesus anywhere around. We didn't even know, are you in this boat? You said you'd never leave me or forsake me, but I don't see you. I don't feel you. I haven't heard your voice in a while. Where are you? You up on that mountain sleeping? Because you left me out in a storm. I'm sure that was going through their minds. So at one point, Jesus is looking out, sees them struggling, and it said he would have passed them by. Does that mean he didn't care about them? No, he said, go to the other side. He wanted them to learn. He didn't cause the storm, but he wanted them to learn to trust and put their hope and confidence in what he said, not what they had had learned to have their confidence in their whole life. And so here's Peter, one of those fishermen may have built that boat. And he's been, they're scared, and now Jesus is coming back. They're even scared of him. They think he's a ghost. And he said, Master, he said, so he says, and Jesus said, it's I. And Peter says, if it's you, bid us to come. So Peter steps out of the boat and walks towards Jesus. In the same storm, 
that they were just afraid they were all going to go down. His hope has increased. Whereas a few moments before, they they had no hope of making it to the other side. Their only vision is, I hope I survive when this boat goes down. Now, his hope has been raised because Jesus shows up. Not only shows up, but tells him to do something even though it makes no sense. Listen to this. It was Peter's obedience to what Jesus said that gave him hope. See, we're looking, well, I, just, I don't know if my faith is, it's simply a matter of obeying His Word. Hebrews 7 goes on to say, Jesus learned obedience through the things that He suffered. That means the things He went through. So He had to learn obedience through the situations He went through in life. And He was perfectly obedient. But He had to learn to do it in the storms of his life because he had storms in his life too. In the storms in the apostles' life, Jesus was using those storms to teach them to trust him and the way they learned to trust him was by obeying what he said and not the way things looked to them. And here's Peter. He has to make a decision. Realize 11 others decided not to. And Peter gets out and he's walking towards Jesus in the middle of this same storm. So, you know, we've, we've known what storms are like lately. So the wind's howling around him. He's not standing on the shore of Narragansett with the waves beating down. He's standing on the waves. They're beating against him. They're swirling all around him and he's walking towards Jesus. But then the Bible says he began to see the waves and to notice the wind. He began to take his eyes off of Jesus and off of the obedience to the word come, and he began to look at the circumstances that his senses were telling him. And when he did it, he lost hope. So that hope is literally an anchor to Peter. It was an anchor in the middle of that storm, literally. It provided stability to him without a boat. Notice, he was more stable out of the boat than they were in the boat. As long as he kept his eyes on Jesus. So no matter... Who's elected? No matter what happens to the economy, no matter what happens at work, no matter what happens around you, it should not change your hope because your hope should be in this word that he's given us, not the boat you built your life in and put your trust in or I have built my life in and put my trust in. In the Old Testament, in the book of Isaiah and Jeremiah, God dealt with them not in terms of boats, but with other nations. 
because Israel had developed a confidence in turning to Egypt and to the horses of Egypt to come because the practice in that day is you could hire mercenaries. And so their practice was to hire Egyptian soldiers to come and fight for them. And God warns them in a number of places not to trust in horses and chariots, not to turn to Egypt, not to turn to other nations, not to turn to the resources that the world was offering them for protection, but to turn to God and ask Him what to do and put Him first. So we see that the first thing that hope does is it provides an anchor for us. It provides stability. So you may be turned around at different times, but you won't be moved from where you are. You won't be moved from where you are. And we see that hope is something that's set in front of us. It's future. It's, it's, it's a vision of what's going to happen. We'll talk more about that in a, a few weeks. And notice it says this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, which enters the presence behind the veil. What that's talking about, we'll go on and read. Where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now let me explain to you that those who may not have studied the tabernacle and the Old Testament, what that's referring to. In, in the tabernacle, which is a pattern for worship, it's a pattern for the temple of Solomon, but it's also really a pattern for understanding our salvation. And again, I, I mentioned it before, and it's not because I'm, I'm trying to sell books because I don't have them to sell. But I wrote a book on the tabernacle. It's in the bookstore, which will explain this to you. But there was an outer court, which was open, which was surrounded by a white linen wall, a curtain that was open to the sky. And in that outer court, there was, a, there was a, an altar, basically made of brass, on which they burned animals 24 hours a day. And that represents the cross because it represented their sins being paid. Then just past that, there was a big bowl called a laver. And it was a bowl that was filled with water and it had mirrors on the inside of it. And the priests would then come past, have the sacrifice, they would come to this altar, this bowl, and they would wash their hands and there was a, a, a basin around the bottom, they would wash their feet. Then there was a tent with a covering that they would enter into and that tent had two rooms. The outer room was called the holy place and it contained a table called the table of showbread, which meant the presence of God. And it was a table that was made of wood overlaid with gold, and there were, there were bread, loaves of bread, unleavened bread, like we call pita bread or whatever you might call Portuguese or, or Italian bread, but it's unleavened bread. There were 12 of those loaves and that were on that table, and the priests would come in periodically and eat those in the presence of God. Then there was a, a lampstand, which had uh, wicks in it, and it represented the Holy Spirit. And, and, and the, that room was lit up by that lampstand. And then there was an altar, somewhat like the one that they burned the animals on, outside the tent. This one was on the veil or the wall that, that was at the doorway to this smaller room. And this was an altar that burned incense, which represented prayer. Once a year, the high priest wearing the garments that he was supposed to wear, 
could go through this process, which the other priest went to, but then he could pull back the veil and enter into the inner room, which was called the Holy of Holies. In that room was the Ark of the Covenant that they made the movie about years ago, although well, there was a lot of inaccuracies in that movie. It, when the tabernacle was dedicated, the presence of God came down, and the presence of God dwelt in that inner room between the wings of the angels which made up the top of this Ark of the Covenant. That, the, the, the outside court was lit up by the sunshine and the atmosphere of this earth. The first room was lit up by this golden candlestick, which represents the illumination or the, the revelation of the Holy Spirit. But the inner room was not lit by the sky or by anything man-made. It was illuminated by the presence of God Himself. When Jesus died on the cross, the Bible tells us that the veil of the temple was torn from the top to the bottom. That veil in Solomon's temple represented this same veil that separated the holy place where the priests could come from the inner sanctuary where only the holy presence of God dwelt. Because when Jesus' flesh was torn, the price was paid for our sin so that we could now go into the presence of God. All right? That's what he's talking about here. So the hope that he's talking about here is the hope of dwelling in the actual presence of God. It's not just a hope for things to get better. Because what we're going to see, the hope that we have, is very clear and very specific. And so this hope, this part of the hope, is to be able to be in the presence of God. Say, well, how does that help me in the middle of my situation? What if Jesus were walking through your day tomorrow with you? I mean, I don't know what you're facing tomorrow, but suppose you're, suppose you're facing surgery. Suppose you're facing some terrible, difficult decision. Suppose you're facing some crisis in your family. If Jesus physically walked into that with you, with his arm around you, and said, I'm here with you, I'm going to solve it with you, do you think you'd feel a little more confident? A little more hopeful? So his presence is the answer to everything you need. Understand he knows everything you're ever going to need. He's willing to give you everything you're ever going to need. He knows every problem you're ever going to have and the solution to that problem before you even know you have the problem. And this represents our hope of coming into His presence. Now notice what verse 19 says. It says, which enters the presence behind the veil... Verse 20, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus. He's the forerunner. He's already gone before us into the actual presence of God as a forerunner for us. So that ultimately our hope is to join Him in that presence. Okay. Having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So part of our hope is that he's gone before us to where we're going, and he's not just sitting there twiddling his thumbs, saying, well, someday they're going to get here. 
He's there as your high priest and my high priest. Well, let's see what that high priest is doing. Let's go back to chapter uh, um, chapter 2, verse 17. Therefore, in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, even Jesus Christ. Let's go to the end of chapter 4. Verse 14, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So this forerunner has gone before us into a throne room and because he paid for our sins that is no longer a throne of judgment and condemnation it is now a throne of grace and mercy and a place to find help in time of need and we have him there not just waiting for us but as our high priest who understands what it is that you're struggling with understands what it is that you're going through and he is your representative there and the Bible says that he ever lives there to make intercession for you and for me. So he's in there interceding before the face of God on your behalf and my behalf. And my hope is that his prayers are always answered. So we are to come boldly where we are, not try to handle that mess on our own, but to come to him boldly with great confidence Therefore, we're not moved by what we're going through. Why? Because I have a high priest who understands, he represents me, he's paid for my sins, and he's there representing me, arguing my case before his father, the judge, and he's interceding for me. Great hope. Great confidence. Great confidence.